You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Ethicist and author of the new book, How, Why How We Do Anything Means Everything in Business, Dove Seidman goes on the record online. Today, what we do matters, but it only keeps us in the game. How we do what we do is so varied that there's an opportunity to differentiate. And thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online, the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. Uh, If this is your first time listening, We do in-depth, one-on-one interviews with journalists from the mainstream media, as well as, from time to time, conversations with bloggers, podcasters, and newsmakers, and we talk to them about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business as we know it. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation. If you are wondering what that is, we are a hosted service on the internet uh, that allows you to integrate search engine optimization, blogs, podcasts, uh, video on demand, audio on demand, database marketing, email marketing, uh, pretty much the gamut of new media communications, Web 2.0 communications, have been integrated into one powerful dashboard that you log into with a username and password, and uh, you can orchestrate an entire online communications campaign uh, without writing a single line of code. I am also the managing director of Schwartzman & Associates. That is a boutique public relations agency based in Los Angeles, specializing in entertainment, media, and technology. Uh, We also do uh, professional services, and, uh, and, and travel, and, uh, and some toys as well. Um, if you are looking for a job, uh, we are hiring account coordinators and account executives. So send your resume to jobs at schwartzmanpr.com. Uh, include a cover letter and, uh, and your salary requirements, and we'd be very happy to get that. Um, today we have a one-on-one interview with Dove Seidman. I read about him first in Thomas Friedman's column in the New York Times. That's a column that appears uh, in the op-ed pages twice monthly. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, um, The World is Flat. Thomas Friedman wrote The World is Flat. And, um, and I read about Dove Seidman, who we're going to talk to today, in, uh, in Mr. Friedman's column. Um, and, uh, and then I saw him again appear on Charlie Rose. And I must say, in the world of journalism, uh, you know, Charlie Rose, uh, t- uh, Charlie Rose, Thomas Friedman, Tim Russert, I mean, those are my tops. Those are probably would be my three tops. And, and so uh, I knew that, um, that if this guy had been written about by Friedman and if he'd been on Charlie Rose, I had to interview him. And it's taken quite some time to get him to uh, agree to, uh, to this interview. But uh, I'm thrilled to report that he has. Um, I have read most of his It's fascinating. Um, and, uh, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Um, we are going to play it for you uh, entirely unedited, unedited, as we always do. Um, but before I play the interview, I want to mention a couple of professional development opportunities. The first is a teleseminar program that I produce for the 
Public Relations Society of America called Meet the Media. And uh, it is a media panel that I uh, do once monthly. You can call into it. And it's a great way to keep up on your media relations uh, skills. Uh, for more information on that, um, you can go to www.schwartzmanpr.com. Uh, the second professional development opportunity I wanted to mention, uh, I developed a program called the New Media PR Boot Camp, which is a program designed to help uh, professional communicators um, learn new media communications and, 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 and Web 2.0 tools fairly quickly. <clears throat> it's a one-day program. Uh, we, we sit down and we go through Facebook, YouTube, Blogger, Technorati, all these various uh, Web 2.0 tools and services that you may be somewhat familiar with, maybe hearing about others uh, but don't know how to use them. And we actually teach you how to use them and, and show you how they might be relevant um, to the types of work that you're doing if you're in communications. The first one that we, we set up for New York City um, through the PRSA um, International um, uh, headquarters is sold out. <clears throat> That's the 13th, 14th. It's going to be in New York City, but it's sold out. So we, we lined up a second one at the PRSA International Conference in Philadelphia. It's going to be a pre-conference workshop. So if you're interested in attending that, Again, you can go to www.schwartzmanpr.com. On the right-hand side there, I have links to all the various um, professional development and speaking, uh, speaking uh, engagements that I have uh, on the map. So if you're interested, love to see you there. Now we are going to play for you the interview with Dove Seidman. Again, entirely unedited after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Dove Seidman, thank you so much for joining us. Eric, thank you for having me. You know, I, was, I, I read about your book first in Tom Friedman's column, and uh, what he wrote, and this is an excerpt, companies that get their house wrong won't be able to just hire a PR firm to clean up the mess by taking a couple of reporters to lunch. Not when everyone is a reporter and can talk back and be heard globally. Uh, tell us, if you would, what you mean by that. What I mean by that, first and foremost, matters only because we need to understand how dramatically, if not profoundly, the world has changed. We used to be in a just-do-it society where our parents and our bosses just told us, just get it done, find a way. How we did what we did didn't matter. It was about bottom line, results, speed, efficiency, productivity. It was about outproducing and outperforming the competition, where what we did and what we made and what service we provided was, in fact, the key to our ability to win and have sustained success. But what Tom Friedman is writing about in a connected, hyper-connected, transparent world where people can see into us and into our inner workings, how we do what we do, how we make the numbers, what we put into the products and how we manufacture them becomes, to, becomes important and matters more than anything else. He also wrote, we do not live in glass houses, or this actually your, is an excerpt from your book, we do not live in, in glass houses, houses have walls, we live in on glass microscope slides, visible and exposed to all. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it seems to me you're convinced now that, that the shift has happened. It's not just a small group of people who are online, or it's not just young consumers. 
now everybody's reputation is just a Google search away. A few points. I mean, I, we are in a hyper-connected world. And technology and various forms of communication technology have thrust us human beings together faster than we have found frameworks and approaches to collaborate and connect. I mean, in some parts of the world, a cow is a sacred object, and for other people, it's lunch later on today. Nonetheless, we are part of global supply chains, emailing and IMing to each other and texting, and we need to collaborate and work together. So in a connected world, those who make powerful connections win. Making powerful connections is about how we treat others, how we relate to them, how we communicate openly and honestly, how we build trust, how we say what we mean, mean what we say, how we follow through, how we apologize when we don't, how we build partnerships. That's what I mean by how. You know, there are so many business sectors today where it almost feels like having the transparency and being able to be a personal, published personally without editorial oversight is um, sort of false feeling of empowerment. And I'm thinking of um, I, other, other podcasters who have left the Mac platform for the PC because they didn't like the customer service or uh, looking on blog posts at people talking about how they don't like certain utility services defecting to the others, but you defect to the others and the service is no better. And I wonder if, if greed may be a more powerful motivator. What's your thought on that? Uh. Well, greed motivates, self-interest motivates. Uh, but in a connected, transparent world, the motivations are changing. Look, in a world in which nothing stays hidden, you have to act as though you have nothing to hide. But to act as though you have nothing to hide in a world in which nothing stays hidden, in fact, you have nothing to hide. You have to have nothing to hide. And one way to maybe bolster your point and answer your question at the same time is, let's take the most efficient device society has ever invented. Every human being, Eric, you've, uh, you've used a resume in your prior life, right? I have too. When I finished, when I got out of school, I put together a resume. And I spent time with my best friends, and we crafted the perfect resume. But that's because in that world, information was king, and we can control it. We could each tell our life story, and in one page, we could, we could define the terms of our success. We could define what anybody interviewing us for a job would ask questions about. But today, information is not king. It's like a toddler. It goes everywhere, gets into everything, and can't be controlled. You, we can send our resume out, and as an employer, we scan these. But then we push them aside, and we Google people before they arrive at their interview. We go onto Facebook, onto MySpace. We see what they say about themselves. We see what their friends say about them. So in a world in which people can no longer tell their story and define their terms of success, everybody's resume individually and companies is being written about them. So in a world in which our life and business story is being told about us, how we live our lives, how we relate to others, how we treat others, how we keep promises or don't, starts to matter more than anything. So those who listen to this podcast know that I am a real advocate of uh, online communications, but just to play devil's advocate here for a moment, I can see how this makes sense for an individual. Mm -hmm. because there may not be as much content in the, in, in the online world on an individual as there is on a company. But you look at these organizations, I mean, you can, you can Google so many of these organizations, healthcare organizations, utilities, uh, just put the name of the organization, Space Sucks, and you get such an, a plethora of information that you have to wonder, I mean, yes, the reputation is there, yes, it's transparent, but is it really causing them 
to change their business practices. And if you live in a world where, you know, one, one devil's really no better than the other, what, how does that really impact the consumer experience? And let me give you two examples that I think are emblematic that there has been this shift. Take J.W. Marriott. Uh, he turned 75 last year. Uh, and up until his 74th year and the last part of, uh, of how he spent uh, his time being CEO, and Marriott's had a great legacy. They've tr achieved tremendously in the marketplace. But he pretty much toured Marriott properties with a pencil and pad, and he took notes. In his 75th year, he started to blog. And on his first blog post, he said, PR and corporate communications are not going to help me with this blog. I'm going to have an open, honest, two-way conversation. What does it say about corporate life when CEOs are increasingly blogging and having authentic and attempting to have authentic, real conversations? Take Kellogg. Uh, Ten years ago, thereabouts, uh, they decided to reinvigorate the company by a new marketing campaign in a world in which they could control the terms of success saying all children should wake up every morning and have the most nutritious breakfast possible and suddenly fruit loops was a healthy cereal even though it was sugar sugar laden just recently kellogg's in an act of industry leadership proactively came forward and said we are no longer going to advertise cereals that do not meet the highest nutritional standards and in this case fruit loops no longer does now, why would they do that? Because they realize that in a connected world where all this information is out there and being discussed in the blogosphere and online, those who find new ways to relate to their customers and deliver a true uh, brand promise are the ones that are going to win. And, you know, we can decide that the world is so hyper-connected and transparent that we should hunker down. We should avoid exposure. It's a dangerous world out there of... of uh, dishonorable accusers who, throw, who can easily and efficiently throw mud around through their posts and chat rooms. Or we can somehow lean into this world and turn these conditions, like Kellogg did or JW Marriott, to our advantage. And another reason, and perhaps the best reason to do that, is we are running out of places where we can win and stand out. So I believe that most people want to be bold. They want to add unique value. They want to solve real problems in business and add real value to their clients. They want to win. They want to differentiate, short-term and, more importantly, long-term. Well, through what we do, it's becoming harder to differentiate because you can get reverse-engineered not in six months to a year, but overnight. So in a world in which what you do is be fast becoming a commodity, we need to find it in an area of great <coughs> variation. In a world of great variation, there's opportunity for differentiation. The rich tapestry of the human condition how people do what they do, how they connect and communicate and relate to others is so varied that in that world of vast variation, there's opportunity for differentiation. So what still matters? But in the past, what we did kept us in the game. I mean, when Xerox got a hold of Haloid and the photocopy technology or Polaroid, uh, better, faster, cheaper mousetraps were the key to success. But today, TiVo and RIM BlackBerry are having a tough go. So in the past, a great what, a product or a service, used to ensure victory. Today, what we do matters, but it only keeps us in the game. How we do what we do is so varied that there's an opportunity to differentiate. So the idea of how is obviously quite broad. Be, can you be specific with, with well, us? Let I mean, me tell specifically. You, let me give you an, exa an example. If, 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 if a company decided, hey, 
how, I, I, I agree with you, and how does matter, and I want to do things differently. How do I do them? Let me give you two examples that I think show you the breadth of it and also might uh, bring the point in a more vivid way to life. There's a person that I discovered through the blogosphere who sells donuts on the streets of Manhattan. Now, he sells an incredibly delicious and good donut, but so does the guy across the street. When you walk up to this person's donut stand, he serves a fresh donut, and then he puts out a tray where you get to make your own change. Now, he was observed to sell three times the donuts than his competitors because he didn't need to stand there and take time counting change. You had a better experience because you took the donut and hit the road, which is why you bought from a donut stand in the first place. But more importantly, because he extended trust to you, he innovated in how he connected with his customers by trusting them to take their own change. They repaid that trust with the loyalty by lining up and buying donuts the next day. So here he innovated through how he created that tight, deeper connection with his customers through trust. University of Michigan Health Systems. Um, they were increasingly being sued uh, for malpractice as part of a broader trend uh, in society to sue doctors for malpractice. Now, they could have hunkered down. They could have said, we can admit nothing. We can fight these things, defend these things, and, uh, and we'll see how the chips fall. But instead, they did something interesting. They realized that they have a sacred doctor-patient relationship. And why not heal that relationship by apologizing? So they started to genuinely apologize for mistakes and their lawsuits went down by 50%, as did their payouts. So instead of thinking in terms of what we can and can't do, in a how world, you think in terms of what you should and should not do. We made a mistake. Perhaps we should apologize. And it paid off. You know, in the world of news, they say uh, when a dog bites a man, that's not news. But when a man bites a dog, that's news because it's something new that's happening. Sure. Right? And, uh, you know, we all learned in preschool to be nice to... Our, our playmates and not to bite and not to steal and not to cheat and here you are coming into the business world and saying hey guys let's be honest let's 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 do the things that we learn to do in preschool in business and it's a it's a big deal now the the, the the man has bitten the dog why why are we in this time now when what what this message that you're bringing to us is foreign why is it a big deal well one of the reasons it's a big deal is because hard habits are tough to break in the just do it world, we got into some habits. I mean, CEOs ran around saying that their favorite business book is The Art of War. We talked about winning battles and dominating markets and dividing and conquering and controlling the message top down. And, uh, and in that world where speed mattered, uh, how it didn't matter. It was just finding a way to get it done. I mean, don't break the law, don't hire child labor, don't do egregiously you know, uh, dumb and, and wrong things, but between those broad boundaries, anything goes. So we got into habits of mind. We thought in terms of what we can and, can and cannot do. We looked for loopholes and we emphasized what and speed and became habituated to do that. And the people who got to the top were good at those habits. In a hyper-connected, transparent world where how we do what we do not only matters but is your key differentiator, we need to form new habits. These are habits of thought, habits of behavior, and more importantly, we need a lens. Do we come to meetings and say, what's on the agenda? What do we need to get done? Or how are we going to collaborate amongst ourselves with our partners to meet the challenges that we face today? It's a shift in thinking and a shift in behavior. 
I mean, you can go onto eBay and you see this every day. I think eBay is an incredible marketplace where behavior is starting to count. There's an individual on eBay, and this, uh, a controlled experiment was done. He sells collectible postcards for a living and has done this for many years and has, a, has earned a reputation through one sale and interaction over time. And then as an experiment, he started to sell an identical set of postcards through fictitious names. It turned out that he was able to get 8% more for the postcards he sold under his established name, a name that he established through how he treated his customers, than he could for selling the same what, the postcards, under fictitious names. So in this connected world where people talk and your reputation is your lifetime batting average, your running score, you're at least guaranteed in one environment an 8% premium for how you do what you do. Think of that. In the book, you use the term outbehave versus outperform. Can you outline some examples of where outbehaving has mattered more than outperforming? Well, I, I believe that outproducing and outperforming matter. But in this world, as I said, they only keep you in the game. Uh, you know, if you go into Webster's and you look uh, outdance, outbox, outmaneuver, outcompete, outperform, they're all words. Outbehave is not yet a word, and I believe one day it'll become one. When, when we increasingly realize that how we behave and treat others uh, is the key to victory. I mean, all the examples that I've cited so far, the doctors in the University of Michigan health system, um, the donut guy, Kellogg, J.W. Marriott, those are all examples of behaving in a way to create deeper and tighter connections. I guess, I guess what's a little confusing to me, I, I recently um, uh, was invited to give a talk at uh, the Cable and Telecommunications Marketing Association in D.C. on blogging. And I'm sitting there in a room with uh, several hundred marketing executives from different organizations, and they're asking questions about blogging, and I'm basically saying the stuff that most of us say. You know, you want to be honest, you want to be straightforward, you want to be transparent, you want to be authentic. And then we go to the Q&A, and the questions are, you know, uh, we, we, we've been having people pose as fans in different chat rooms, and uh, it's not working. Why isn't it working? And I would say, well, you know, you probably wouldn't want to pose as fans. It's probably not the right thing to do. You probably should uh, you know, acknowledge who you are, disclose where you come from, and participate in the conversation in a way that's open and ethical and in a way that it actually advances the dialogue in a meaningful, constructive way. Mm -hmm. And the next hand raises their hand, the next person raises their hand. Yeah, uh, so, so how do we infiltrate these blog circles and, and get our message in there? And there's the, it, it was clear to me that the question just kept coming, the same question over and over again. And it, was, it, was, it dawned on me, why, why do we have this instinct to be anything other than transparent and authentic? Why, why are we in this place today? And you're, you're attributing it to the art of war and these various mm -hmm. paradigms and frameworks uh, of, of business competition that were aggressive and competitive? I mean, is that it? Where is the disconnect? And, and why have we come to a place now where, where the word PR actually is negative? You know, oh, that's just PR, to imply that if it's, if it's information being conveyed by a, a PR mechanism that it's somehow dishonest. Why, why, how did we arrive at this place that we're at today? Well, um, I think the root of it all is the need for control. Right? Now, any message that is one way, it comes from on high and it's one way and you can't talk back. You can't turn the message into a conversation where all sides of the story are somehow heard. Uh, increasingly gets distrusted. 
Now, in the prior world that I call fortress capitalism, when you could control the message, most messages came from on high and they were one way. And uh, different marketplaces were divided and conquered. I mean, you, you would uh, tell one uh, community one thing about your prices and your products and another political candidates would give one stump speech to one crowd and pander and say and tell them what they wanted to hear and go to the next town with a different message. Quack doctors could pick up and move to the next town uh, and tell a new story about, you know, their practice. So human beings have a need to control their path, their success, and they could use messaging, PR and otherwise, to do so. The fallacy in that is, why do we hire PR consultants? Why do we hire firms? Because we think that somehow we can manage, be it a crisis or even our reputation. And that was true in a world in which you can control the story. But in a world in which, as I said, the story is being written about you, you can no longer manage your reputation. You can only earn it. You can only earn it one truthful communication, one authentic, valuable interaction at a time. So there's a shift from managing your reputation to earning it in a connected world. There's a uh, pundit on uh, web usability. His name is J Jacob Nielsen, who's quoted quite a bit uh, on the experiences we have on a website. Mm -hmm. And um, for some time, and I don't want to attribute this to him, but I did interview him in a prior show. If, if a listener wants to pull that up and listen to it, they can. Um, for some time, there was a sort of a school of thought in web design that said that uh, on your home page, you should actually have different buttons that allow you to segment your message to different audiences. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, if you were selling um, books for education, you might have a button for parents, a button for children, a button for educators. Um, is that a failed strategy? I mean, does the loss of control mean we can no longer segment information? No, and not at all. I mean, uh, there are distinctions that matter and make a difference. It's one thing to segment. It's one thing to point to differences or talk about how something is uniquely valuable to a parent uh, as opposed to a student. It's another thing to say something contradictory. It's another thing to say different things about the same thing. It's another thing to be hypocritical. That's, that, the latter is what tends to bother people, not pointing to valuable differences that make a difference in people's minds. Now, um, I want to give you a chance to talk about uh, the website, uh, housematter.com. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about what you're doing there. I know you recently blogged about the serial sure. um, incident with Kellogg leading the way right. and others following. Sure. Um, tell us about what you're doing online and how you're using the Internet to get right. the message out for yourself. Uh, well, th thanks for that. I mean, um, the f How was first introduced as a book. Um, but in the book, you know, the first line in the book is that this is not a how-to book, it's a how book. And what I mean by that is I don't have a set of recipes or formulas or seven things you need to do to become a how person or how business person or the eight or uh, how rules of thumb or the 49 immutable laws of how to do what we do. Uh, the book is written um, to provide some insight. Here's how we might think differently in, uh, about how to thrive. Uh, and achieve success and significance in a transparent, connected world that we find ourselves in. So it's a lens, it's a framework. And to understand how is to start to look at the world differently. It's to apply different thoughts and frameworks of relating to others. Uh, and to truly bring it to life, I'm hoping to inspire a conversation, a dialogue, where we exchange experiences uh, and ideas uh, and react to the changing world and apply this new lens to the changing dynamics that we encounter every day. 
the blog to me is a perfect platform to keep the conversation going. So I'm inviting people who, uh, with whom this is resonating to join in a discussion uh, and deepen the concepts within how, but uh, help us together look through a new lens, uh, perhaps in a more powerful and visible way. It's about a conversation and keeping it going. So, so what's, as a uh, hypothetical, mm-hmm. um, recently Comcast uh, hired a PR agency mm-hmm. that was called out for astroturfing, which is the term that's been used to imply a fake grassroots initiative online. Mm-hmm. Um, they're launching a, a network called the Big Ten. Uh, it's going to be a football network. And um, their PR uh, uh, agency was caught planting, uh, you know, pandering, states, pandering statements on chat rooms mm-hmm. for football fans. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if you were hired uh, after this thing came out into the open to come in and meet with Comcast and meet with the PR firm and try to teach them to get their house right, how would you do that? You know, the, the Comcast example reminds me, I mean, I think the most emblematic one is Wikipedia, right? Because that's an open environment where history uh, is being written by people together. Uh, and I think recently about a bunch of corporate contributors went in there to change and control the message and, and alter certain facts or, or maybe put a rosier shine uh, on different facts. And uh, technologically, it was easy to see the root uh, contributor and really uncover many corporations. And I think Comcast and others are increasingly realizing that in this world, uh, it can't be a few people on top, a few executives plus PR people controlling the experience. Uh, and what I'm seeing companies do is shift and saying, why don't we con- uh, foster a corporate culture? Because a culture is how we do what we do, how decisions get made, how we behave, how we treat each other. It's the unspoken and the spoken uh, understandings and shared beliefs in a company about how, how we pursue success and and achieve and and treat people. Uh, So what I counsel companies is to foster environments, cultures, where more people get their house right because all their people are connected through email and so many different forms to the marketplace and the various stakeholders. Now, what's so powerful about culture and what companies are realizing is, Eric, there are only three ways to get people to behave a certain way in a way that really delivers the brand promise of a company. You can coerce people, do this or else. Get me the report by 4 o'clock. Well, the only reason for me to get you a report by 4 o'clock is if your title is bigger than mine, and I'm worried that you might do something to me if I don't. Most companies evolved from coercion. We still have fireable offenses, and people do get coerced from time to time. But more uh, predominantly, we see motivation as the key instrument to getting people to go from A to B. Carrots and sticks. Here's your bonus, a promotion, some money for your 401k. Uh, Here are the rules. Please play by them. Do your job. Work hard, and we'll take care of you. Now, motivation matters. But in a connected world where you could fast put your resume online and monster in other sites and see greener grass and people are constantly moving, the connections between people and their company and customers and their um, companies from, from which they buy are getting looser and looser. So how do we foster deeper connections with our people and customers? Through inspiration. Now, people are inspired when they share beliefs. They share values. They believe in a company. They believe in the company that they're working at or they believe in the company they're buying from. And I think in this connected world, we're going to see inspiration being used by companies more and more to create these tighter connections 
and to inspire the behaviors that really make a difference and achieve success and significance in business and in life. And the way to get inspiration is by enlisting people in a set of common values, beliefs, and purpose and mission that makes a difference. So, Dove, you're out there. you got this best-selling book. You, you've been featured in uh, Thomas Friedman's column. You were on Charlie Rose. I mean, really the pinnacles of journalism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you're out there. You're doing this on a daily basis. What I want to know from you, what are the biggest recurring challenges that you encounter when you go into a company to help them get their house right? It's interesting. It depends when you ask. You know, I consider myself a BE person before Enron. And I used to run around telling big companies and CEOs and boards and others, you ought to take some vitamins. You have a great culture. Make it stronger. Or you're a little sick. Get healthier. And they'd say, what are you talking about? We think your vitamins are great, but we don't need them. Uh, Since the scandals and the aftermath and how the world has become transparent, it's become easier. People are realizing that they are running out of places to stand out, that how they do what they do. Outbehaving is really an opportunity to not just survive in this world, but thrive in it. So the audience is more receptive. So they realize that there's something there, but they feel the tension between principle and profit. I want to do the right thing. Our heart's in the right place. But isn't that a tax on the system? I got to be fast. I got to win. And I need to do the right thing. The ones who really get it understand that one reinforces the other. It's not promote my business, make things happen, and on top of that, find time to do the right thing. Those who understand that being principled and profitable reinforce and go hand in hand are the ones that are really being propelled and guided uh, in this new world. And it's showing people the connection and the relationship between not just getting it done, but getting things done the right way and how to innovate and bring new ideas. I mean, many people want to do the right thing. They believe in the golden rule. They believe in treating people fairly and honorably. But in this world, what does that look like? How can we be more creative? How can we innovate in how? From the donut guy to the doctors. I mean, my favorite one is this uh, gentleman, Angel Zamora. And I know this personally. A few years ago, I was buying uh, some jewelry to celebrate my anniversary, my wedding anniversary. And it was the day before we were going to go away, and you haven't met my wife, but I think it's true of all, all married people. You don't want to show up empty-handed to an anniversary. And I came out at 12 o'clock to intercept uh, the UPS delivery guy, Angel Zamora. And he showed up, and sure enough, there was no package on the cart. And I explained my plight to him. And instead of saying to me, look, I deliver packages for a living. And my shift ends at 12, and what I do is deliver packages until 12, and it's not my problem. He drove back downtown. He went to the, uh, he found his boss, and somehow they found the package, and he came back to the west side here in Los Angeles and delivered the package. So Angel doesn't see himself as a delivery guy, as a human doing. He sees himself as a human being in a connected world and as an instrument by which he keeps UPS's promise. And he delivered the promise. My connection to him, and I write about him in the book, and to UPS is now tighter. Because he understood that he outbehaved the competition. He didn't think in terms of what he does. I just deliver packages. But he thought in terms of how do I do that? How do I do that and keep a promise on behalf of my company and connect with this customer? And now the connection is a very loyal one. Well, thank you for this breath of fresh air. Dove Seidman, his book, How?, is available online and in booksellers. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. 
You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. 